Hello, and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I'm Lucas Stock, and I'm Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as I discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst the diversity of the members of Christ's church. Well, this is a very odd day to be recording a very weird episode. It is just me today. Unfortunately, um, due to some health things that have come up with uh, his wife Hannah, Jensen is not able to record today. Um, as you know, if you've been following him on social media as well as hearing in the last episode or two, um, his wife Hannah just had surgery last week and um, recovery is not going quite as quickly or smoothly as planned. So uh, it's just me today. Uh, some things came up and, and he's not going to be able to join us. So it's going to be a little bit of a different episode, but hopefully not too disappointing. Although I am certainly disappointed to be doing this alone instead of with him. But um, I, I know that both Hannah and Jensen would, would really um, covet your prayers. And by the time this episode comes out, I'm sure things will be looking a little differently. You know, this I'm recording this on on a Sunday, so, you know, it'll be a couple days before you guys hear this, but everything will hopefully be back to normal by then. But in the meantime, like I said, you're stuck with me for a solo episode. So today, kind of an impromptu solo episode, I thought that I would do something that I find really interesting, or at least, I guess, talk about something that I find really interesting, that it's a little... Like in terms of prep, it's totally different than anything we've done. I'm I'm basically gonna be presenting a paper that I wrote for a class in in my MDiv program, um, and the reason I wanted to do that is it's it's a topic that I've thought about obviously because I wrote a paper on it, but Jensen hadn't, so it wasn't something that we were gonna do, um, you know, as a topic for us both to talk about, but. It is a topic that I was interested enough to write a paper on and spent a good amount of time on this paper, and I was really happy with um, the research I did. I felt like I really learned a lot, and I thought it was a really fun paper. And then, so I wanted to, you know, share the ideas that I that I had come across and everything. But also, I think we can kind of think of this almost as an example of um, doing theology in a little bit more of a of an academic setting, but not to say that that is somehow divorced from the non-academic side of theological reflection, right? So just because if you're listening and you're not in seminary, or even if you are in seminary, but you're not in, you know, my class when I wrote this paper, um, you know, you, you aren't in the same setting as I was when I wrote it, but this is you know, I have been given the the task and the blessing to to think about these things and study these things in an academic setting, you know, in a formal higher education uh, context for classes where I have to write papers, I'm getting graded, getting a degree, all that kind of stuff, um, which gives me a lot of freedom and opportunity to do things like this paper, which was a pretty, you know, decently sized little paper Um on, on a topic that, that I found really interesting. And so what I want to tr- try to do is take that out of the realm of 5,000-word grad school paper and transfer it to a presentation that, that I'm, I might give in a church, like a Sunday school setting, or 
uh, something like that, or I, or I might present to some interested friends who who didn't necessarily have the same um, educational background that I did, or something something like that. You know, this is not a sermon, but not really a lecture either, if that makes sense. And I I thought it might be kind of cool to try this out. I don't really know how it's going to go, and see how that works. See if we can, you know, take sort of a almost like a like this episode is almost like a case study of doing theology. I've spent a lot of time preparing, you know, not this past weekend, but a couple months ago when I wrote this paper, a lot of time and thought and energy into this paper to come to some conclusions and have some some information to present that again, I find really interesting and I think is 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 worth sharing and I think can lead to some good conversations and spark some discussions that might not otherwise happen in certain settings, at least in certain circles, uh, and even potentially serve in, to be to be edifying in some way to the body of Christ in, in some small way. I'm, I'm you know, as, as we'll get into the topic, you know, this isn't a super, um, you know, high stakes, at least, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it, I guess. So with all of that kind of intro out of the way, we're going to be talking about something that might seem a little obscure, um, but I think it has some interesting connections. So devotion to the Virgin Mary and the English Reformation. Um, So I took a class on Christian spirituality in England, where we looked at um, different spiritual practices, devotional practices, and theology in the history of, of Christianity in England, going back to um, the you know the first millennium as well as the medieval church and the Reformation and, and onward, and the topic I took a look at for my my sort of final project was to look at Marian devotion. So, what were the practices? What was the the theology? What were the beliefs in terms of people's devotional uh, connection to the Virgin Mary? The practices that they did, what they believed about it, what did what did it look like on the ground, and how did those things change during and after or during and as a result of the Reformation in England, right? So first thing that's important to note is what it looked like in in England specifically in the medieval church to be devoted to the Blessed Virgin. What did that look like? We see a few maybe unsurprising practices and characteristics Things like uh, statues and icons and different kinds of art you can find that that are that are focused on Mary that are devoted to her in in a religious context or a church context. We have shrines, so places where people might make pilgrimage pilgrimages to to come and express their devotion to Mary in, in a special way, at a special place. These shrines would, would often be, just like with other saints, associated with relics. So there might be objects that are somehow, at least allegedly, connected to Mary that that reside in this shrine. So, so you have a, a, a tangible uh, you know, representation or manifestation of Mary's presence at this particular shrine in this particular place that, that you would motivate your your pilgrimage to go to to pray to maybe make an offering or you know whatever it might be um 
And all of this we can see in different devotional literature is expressed in certain prayers that are that are addressed to and devoted to Mary specifically. Just like we might have prayers to to other saints, um, we have prayers that are that are uniquely Marian. Um, and some of this, you know, particularly for those of us who didn't grow up or are not currently in a Roman Catholic um, uh, context, the the medieval church might. The way that they speak, the way that they, you know, specifically pray to and about Mary, which might certainly strike us as as odd, maybe a bit extravagant, maybe even a bit problematic, depending on our background, um, what we what we think about that. But I think it's worth looking at and and just reading one of these prayers um, because you know I'm not trying to cherry pick you know a certain kind of prayer and then and then say that oh based on this one prayer everyone who prayed to Mary. Was, was praying in this exact way. Um, obviously, there's so much that has been lost to history. There's so much more to dive into. But to, to just take a look at this one section from, uh, from one prayer, I think gives us, if not a full understanding of everything that's going on in Prayers to Mary, it certainly gives us a peek into, you know, sort of behind the curtain. Because we, we can just say, Prayers to Mary. But if we don't actually read a prayer to Mary, we don't necessarily know what that looks like, right? So this is a prayer that is addressed to Mary. I implore you, holy lady, mother of God, most full of tender love, daughter of the high king, mother most glorious, mother of orphans, consolation of the desolate, right road for all who go astray, health and hope of those who hope in thee, virgin before childbirth, virgin in childbirth, virgin after childbirth, fount of mercy, Fount of health and grace, fount of tenderness and joy, fount of consolation and gentleness. So, like I said, for those of us who who, who don't pray to saints or don't don't invoke Mary commonly, calling her things like the fount of mercy might strike us as quite a a bold prayer, quite a big statement, and maybe even like I said, a bit extravagant. And Personally, I you know I, I think those are fair <laughs> descriptions of a prayer like this, um, but I think what looking at this does shows that Marian devotion was was very rich in the sense of it was involved. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't something that that people maybe did, maybe didn't do. They didn't really think about it. Like Mary was a person, was a saint who played a really big role in the spiritual lives and devotional lives of Christians, both clergy and lay people, in medieval uh, England. Not just medieval England, but, but particularly what I'm looking at uh, in this paper that I'm, that I'm drawing this from is the church in England specifically. So that's kind of a snapshot. We've got this rich, um, very lively very serious, uh, very deep devotional current that's devoted to the Virgin Mary in terms of prayer, in terms of worship, and in terms of, of uh, you know, pilgrimage and, and, and um, you know, a cult around her, right? And so the question, the, the next question is, okay, if, if that's sort of a, a generalized understanding of what's going on in medieval England prior to the Protestant Reformation, what happens when the Reformation comes to England? What what changes? Because obviously, not everybody who is, you know, a Christian in England 
not everybody who is a Christian that comes from a tradition that comes out of the Church of England, Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist, like a lot of them, we might say all of them, don't really tend to express any sort of care or devotion to the Virgin Mary in these terms, right? So something changed, or at least some, seems like something changed. But what did change? What's different? What's what's not different? Um, and so in order to sort of try and take a look at what changes in the Reformation, there's two places I want to go. One is the prayer book tradition. Uh, like I said, focusing in on England, the church in England. Um, the, the Book of Common Prayer, the, the various revisions of the books, Book of Common Prayer, is a really important place to, to look to, to observe what is the... the the liturgical and devotional life of the church look like. Um, these, this is the prayer book that contains the 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 written prayers, the calendar of, of of holidays and feast days, the liturgy for for use in public worship. This is a obviously really key place to look. Um, so what I wanted to take a look at is what feast days dedicated to Mary are kept in the Protestant Book of Common Prayer from the medieval church, right? Because there, there are various feast days that, that develop for all kinds of saints and all kinds of different commemorations. Mary is one of them. There's, there's a bunch of different days devoted to different pieces of her life, events in her life. And the Book of Common Prayer in, in 1549, Cranmer's first book, doesn't, doesn't uh, you know, get rid of, of a calendar of saints, doesn't get rid of, of holidays and feast days. Um, so what days did it get rid of, if any, that are devoted to Mary? Or, or maybe a better way to ask it that, that might be a better way to get at the question is, so what did Marian devotion look like in the Reformation? What days devoted to Mary are in the Book of Common Prayer. And we see that in 1549, which is the first Book of Common Prayer, there is the Feast of the Purification of the Virgin Mary, which is also known as the Presentation of Christ in the Temple. And there is the Feast of the Annunciation, the day that um, the, the announcement to Mary that she will uh, conceive Jesus is, is given to her by the angel Gabriel. Those two feasts are... are Black letter holy days, they're they're like required feast days, so they're, they're you know they're in the book and they're also marked off as important days. Um, but that's it. There aren't any any other specifically Marian feast days. Um, it is noteworthy that on the in in the prayer, the collect for Christmas Day in the fifteen forty nine Book of Common Prayer, um, Cranmer actually added a reference to Mary that was not in previous liturgies, uh, uh, prayers on, on, on liturgical prayers for Christmas Day. So the, the Christmas Day collect in 1549 read, in the 1549 prayer book reads, Almighty God, which hast given us thy only begotten Son to take our nature upon him, and this day to be born of a pure virgin, Grant that we, being regenerate and made thy children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by thy Holy Spirit through the same, our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. So it's it's interesting. The, that prayer, that Christmas Day prayer, is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus' birth, his incarnation, obviously. That's what Christmas is all about. But it does reference Mary. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting to, to see how that is added in by Cranmer. 
Um, while, while obviously, <coughs> obviously, excuse me, um, the focus for this prayer is on the incarnation. It's on what happened involving Mary. It was Christ's birth, the Lord being, being incarnate through her, right? Um, so as we move on to the next editions of the prayer book, in 1552, we see the Feast of the Annunciation and we see the Feast of the Purification again. Same thing in 1559. Um, but then in 1662, which is the next uh, version, the next revision of the prayer book, and it is still, it, to this day, it's not the final prayer book that's been produced, but it's, it's the official prayer book of the Church of England all the way to this day. Um, there are more feast days that are added in devoted to Mary. So we've got the purification, we've got the annunciation like before, and then we've got these lesser days that, that are, that are they're not marked off as being really important required days, but they are days that are commemorated in the calendar of the prayer book, which is the visitation, which is commemorates when, when Mary went to visit um, Elizabeth and John the Baptist leaped in Elizabeth's womb. Uh, we have actually the, the Feast of the Conception of the Virgin Mary. So not, not the conception of Jesus in the Virgin Mary, but, but Mary's conception from her parents. Um, and the Feast of the Nativity of, um, of Mary. Again, that's, it's Mary's birth, not, not Jesus' birth from Mary. And these, these are all days that are in the prayer book. So what we see, I, I would argue, is that Mary and particularly liturgical devotional practices to Mary or, or to Mary might be not the best way to put it um, about Mary related to Mary. Mary and feast days are not only kept in the prayer, the Protestant prayer book tradition, um, but it's actually expanded in 1662. So not, it's not like they kept a bunch and then started getting rid of some until they got to the most important ones. They always had the most important ones, but they kind of got rid of the, the ones that are maybe less important or maybe a little more, we're not sure what to do with them. But then over the years, they eventually added those back in. Um, and I say that they're in the 1662, but they actually show up much earlier because shortly after the 1559 prayer book, there was a change in the calendar, not a whole new prayer book. That wasn't until over 100 years later in 1662. But there is an, a new calendar much closer to the publication of the 1559 prayer book, and those days were added back in at that point. So they weren't new in 1662, but it was the first newly published prayer book that had them from the beginning in it, right? And, okay, so we've got whatever's going on in the Reformation. They're not obviously saying anything related to some kind of church practice, worship uh, services or, or, or commemorations relating to Mary, we're going to cut those out. That, that's not what they're saying, because it would be really, really weird for them to say any and all form of expression by the church directed and involving Mary um, is inappropriate and we need to get rid of it and then keep multiple feast days that are explicitly commemorating aspects of Mary's life and her work in the incarnation. It, it, it obviously the, the presence of these feast days indicates that whatever changes were happening in the Reformation, in the, the, the creation of the, of the 
worship and the liturgy that was going to be contained in the Book of Common Prayer, it didn't involve just simply erasing Mary from the life of the church, right? Um, the other thing to look at is what did the reformers actually, the English reformers actually have to say about Mary, about in terms of theology and in terms of practice, not, not the Book of Common Prayer itself, but the actual people involved in creating and maintaining and spreading reform in the Church of England. So Bishop John Jewell, who is a, a, a very important bishop, significant, he wrote a very famous uh, defense of the Reformed Church in England. And he has this quote that I love <laughs> um, because it reveals the attitude that all of the reformers held, the English reformers held about Mary and about Marian devotion and about the Christian view of Mary, which I feel like it, it, it's one of those things where if your categories are, you know, Roman Catholic as we understand it today and like evangelical, then this quote's gonna, not going to let anybody, you know, not, not going to please anybody, right? But he says, Thus have men openly prayed unto Mary to the great blaspheming of her holy name. So he's got a problem with people praying to Mary. He's saying that this is, you know, he's pointing to this as, as something not good. But the reason he's saying it is that it's blaspheming Mary's holy name to pray to her instead of praying to God. So we have this, it, it, I think depending on your background, this might feel like a really strong like tension, not necessarily contradictory, but just very surprising to be like, yeah, I have a big problem with you praying to Mary, but the problem is like what you're doing is offensive to her and what she represents and who she is, right? The argument isn't they're praying to Mary, which is this great blasphemy against God. He'd probably say that, but what he's saying here is they're praying to Mary, which is blasphemy against Mary. This is not the appropriate way to honor Mary. So there's this implication in this quote that Mary needs to be honored, it needs to happen in a certain way that looks different than the, the, the traditional medieval devotion and honoring of Mary that we in England are used to doing or, or, or used to seeing. Um, so it's really interesting. If, if I could summarize what the reformers have to say um, about Mary, it would be this quote, and then it would be these, these two like kind of main points. So... In the, the Reformation in England, invocation of the saints is rejected. You can read the 39 Articles, you can read uh, the homilies, and also the writings of individual reformers. Now, whatever we want to say about that, I, I know there are Anglicans who pray to saints, and there's, there's debate about that. There's, you know, is this practice something that's appropriate? Is it something that's not appropriate? There are, there are people who are not Anglican, you know, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, um, I, I don't know about any other traditions where it's common or normal or like uh, typical to pray to saints, but um, obviously Christians have been praying to saints for a really long time. That, you know, diving into that issue w w is a whole other project. So, so without doing that, I just want to say simply, it seems to me fairly straightforward that the invocation of saints, praying to saints, and this includes Mary, is rejected as part of the Reformation in England. Um, in the documents and in the writings of the Reformers and of the Reformation, we, we see that that is not the normal 
um, or acceptable practice anymore for them. Okay. However, classical doctrines relating to Mary, so th things that people believed about Mary, theological opinions and doctrines about Mary, are treated as um, fancy term adiaphora, basically things that are indifferent. So is Jesus God? That's not indifferent. You have to believe as a Christian that Jesus is God. You, there, there's not there's not there's not any wiggle room um, that doctrine needs to be confessed to be a Christian um, should ministers wear vestments in worship that's that's something that can be debated you can have different opinions on it and it doesn't really at the end of the day change the content of the faith if you say yes we need to wear vestments or no we don't need to wear vestments or we shouldn't or whatever Adiaphora, things that are indifferent. So these different doctrines of Mary are, are, are treated as things indifferent, as things that don't need to be, uh, you know, don't have to be believed. You don't have to have this or that opinion. You need to have specific opinions about doctrines that are, that are primary issues of the faith. Um, and and what they're what they're looking at is things relating to Mary that are uh, uniquely Marian doctrines. Um, so we think about things today. You know, there's the classic kind of um, Marian dogmas that the that the Roman Church has, um, where uh, she's the mother of God. She uh, was immaculately conceived. She was um, assumed into heaven, and she was perpetually virgin. Um, these are these are not things indifferent for the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but what's interesting is these 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 doctrines, which not all of these doctrines had been formulated by Rome at this point. Not all of these doctrines were were universally agreed upon in the medieval church. Um, but the different the different some of the different doctrines that are at least similar to what we think of today, and some of them are the same, some of them go back to the early church, um, they're not considered uh, things that need, to, that need to be accepted or need to be rejected. They're considered things indifferent. So, for example, the question of the Immaculate Conception of Mary was not a question that they were arguing over, okay, why do we believe or not believe that she was immaculately conceived, they didn't really necessarily care if you said that she was or was not immaculately conceived as long as you maintained that Mary needed a savior and she needed that savior to be Christ. So it, it, many, I think most of the reformers did reject the doctrine of the immaculate conception. Um, and, you know, this was done for different reasons. Um, but the at the end of the day... Not everybody did, and that was okay. Richard Hooker even says that whether or not Mary had sin is a thing indifferent. Um, everyone, whether you thought that Mary had sin, whether you thought that she didn't, whether, whatever you thought about the Immaculate Conception, um, everyone agreed, however it worked out, that Christ needed to save Mary. So if, it, you know, this might sound a little confusing, um, but... What's, what this, this quote from, from a reformer named Hugh Latimer helps. Um, if she were a sinner, then she was redeemed or delivered from sin by Christ as other sinners be. If she were no sinner, 
then she was preserved from sin by Christ so that Christ saved her, was her necessary savior, whether she sinned or no. So it's indifferent what you say about Mary's sinlessness or sinfulness. What's not indifferent is that Mary needed to be saved and she was saved by Christ. So we see this focus on Christ even in this question about Mary. However, some people in the English Reformation did, and the people who didn't thought that that was okay, by and large, because the question that was more important was, how was Mary saved? So it was, it was, it was, was Mary saved by Jesus? Everybody agreed yes. The question of whether she was immaculately conceived was less important to them. It was a thing indifferent. Um, the, the other thing is, or, or I should say maybe another thing, is the, the question about Mary's perpetual virginity. So the idea that Mary was semper virgo in Latin, perpetually virgin, is unanimous among the English reformers. Um, and what's interesting, too, is the English Reformation is not unique about this. All of the major reformers, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, they all believed uh, and affirmed that Mary was perpetually virgin. Um, for the English reformers, her perpetual virginity is a doctrine that is supported by both the history of the church and the tradition, as well as scripture itself. Cranmer himself actually argues on the basis of scripture that, that Mary is um, perpetually virgin. So there's that. Um, and he, he refers to, to both scripture and tradition, but ultimately for him it rests on, on scripture. And he says that the reason the early Christian fathers who, who, who came to this conclusion did so was based on scripture. Um, so it's, it's interesting that everybody in the English Reformation believed, and I say everybody, I mean all the reformers, people who, um, who, who were doing the theology and then the reforming, they, they were, they were unanimous in belief in Mary's perpetual virginity, but unlike later Roman Catholic theology, they never say that, that belief in this doctrine is necessary to be saved or necessary to be considered orthodox. Richard Hooker, again, he says that um, the perpetual virginity of, of Mary is, is an opinion that, that, that people have. Um, it's, it's an opinion that the mother, quote, that the mother of our Lord lived always in the state of virginity as well after his birth as before. Um, for of these two, the one, her, her virginity before, is a thing which of necessity we must believe. The other, her, her virginity after, is her continuance in the same state, always hath more likelihood of truth than the contrary. So he's saying we need to believe that she was a virgin when, when Jesus was, was born, right? Um, that's just the doctrine of the virgin birth. That's in the creeds. That's the clear teaching of scripture. That is part of the, the theology of the incarnation. But he says, whether or not she continued in that state of virginity, there's no reason not to believe it. It's, you know, it's more likely that it's true than it's not, but you don't need to believe it. Um, which, again, is just for, for us today, I think, as Protestants, whatever we might think about this, I think is a very interesting way of thinking about and speaking about these, um, these doctrines. And so what I want to do to wrap up is to 
focus in and kind of draw a conclusion that I think gives us a, a, a really important insight on the English Reformation itself and the, the, the kind of theology that was happening and motivating the changes that happened in the Reformation, um, as well as I think can give us a helpful, maybe, maybe principle is the right word, a helpful principle to take with us when we're doing theology or when we're trying to answer a certain theological question or um, decide whether or not something, you know, is in accord with scripture, whether or not we need to raise it up to the level of, of a dogma that must be believed or rejected, or whether this is something that's maybe adiaphora, something indifferent, right? And so that is this, this principle is um, all of what the reformers have to say in the, in the English Reformation about Mary when it comes to devotion and theology around the Blessed Virgin. Everything that they're doing is first and foremost a turn to a Christological focus. They're recentering theology on Jesus and, and, and nothing and no one else. And that's the principle. The, the Christological turn of the Reformation, I think, is really, really important for understanding the, in terms of the theology what's happening in the English Reformation. Obviously, there's a lot of political uh, factors and things that are going on, and, and, it, and it's more complicated than this. But one of the really important things that goes on is this, this focus, this return, retrieval of Christ at the center of all their theology. And I think that this is really, really clear when we look at their theology about Mary. So what we see is praying to Mary along with the other saints, it's rejected because prayer is something that we give to God. Worship is something we give to God. We worship Jesus because he is God. We don't worship Mary, which means we pray to Jesus. We don't pray to Mary. At least that's the, the logic that's going on. I know that um, people from different traditions might debate that, but I'm just trying to give a, give a, a summary of, of, of the ideas. Um, Things like shrines are, are part of that, where they're 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 taken down, their significance is 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 reduced. It's 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 not uh, a, a place of pilgrimage where you go to pray with and touch this relic and you get extra grace or anything like that anymore, um, because the focus is back on Christ over the focus on saints when it comes to the worship practices and expressions of the faith, but. The saints are not wiped away. Mary's not erased. She's not removed from the, the tradition, right? We still celebrate feast days devoted to her. We still see that in the earliest English prayer books. We still have prayers that are, that are, that are written and assigned for those days. But now those prayers focus on the incarnation and the role that Mary played in the incarnation, pointing us to her son. So when we, when we commemorate and look to and look at Mary, what we don't see is her as a fount of mercy anymore, like that prayer said I read at the beginning, but we see her pointing to her son as the fount of mercy, right? Um, we see her directing our gaze to Jesus always, always taking attention away from herself and giving it to Jesus, just like we see in uh, Luke let it be done according to your servant, right? This, this submission to God's will and this humility that is so uh, 
uh, archetypal for the Christian life. It's 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 the perfect model of 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 faith of Christian faith is is Mary's response uh, to what God had to tell her through the angel Gabriel, and and we see that expressed in these prayers in the in the prayer book for the feast days that are no longer praying to her as the fount of mercy as as all those things, but but they're they're praying to God thanking him and remembering the incarnation through the virgin that we that we confess as the the central mystery of our faith and and what we really see is that the reformers don't care to erase the heritage that they inherited because they think it's bad they want to change it what they care is to reform they they care to change to retrieve a focus on Christ. And the way that we know that is they, they, they look at what we want to say about the Immaculate Conception. Is Mary born sinless? And their concern is, how is Mary saved? How is Mary saved? Is she saved because she's special and she doesn't have sin? That's not okay. Oh, she's saved because Jesus preserved her from sin. Okay, yes. Or she had sin and Jesus saved her from her sin. The, again, the focus is on Jesus, right? The focus is on Mary is the blessed virgin who gave birth to God in the flesh. And that God-man, Jesus, he is the one who saved her just like he saved everybody else who believes in him. That's the focus. But what happens when we look at perpetual virginity? They don't change it at all. Not only do they accept it, but they accept it in the original form of that doctrine, they don't they don't tweak it, they don't make any caveats, and they accept it for all the same reasons. They point to the same Bible verses and the same typological interpretations of of those verses. They point to the same church fathers and the same traditions that had been handed down that they had received in the medieval church, and they don't change any of it. And I think the reason that they didn't feel the need to tweak their understanding of perpetual virginity, either either changing their their rationale or changing the way they, they express it or the language they use to describe it or just outright rejecting it altogether. The reason they didn't feel the need to do that is because that is a doctrine about, about Mary that doesn't affect Jesus. Does that make sense? It doesn't... In, what we believe about Mary's perpetual virginity doesn't actually change or affect or impact what we believe about Christ, his incarnation, or his atoning work as the incarnate Son of God. Whether or not Mary was always a virgin doesn't change what we believe about Christ's, uh, the need for Christ to, to be Savior for, for Mary and for us. It doesn't change what we say about the incarnation that he was born a virgin, or born <laughs> that he was born of a virgin, that he was born from Mary, where he took her substance, came, became the word became flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Whether or not Mary remains a virgin until she dies doesn't change those confessions. And I think that that's why they were, in the Reformation in England, they were fine to keep those things, untouched and unchanged, because... The project of the Reformation was not to break away from Rome and invent something new and to take the things that Rome gave us and to change them into something that is our own. It was to maintain the faith once delivered to the saints 
that had been unbroken for the last 1500 years at that time and to pass it on to the next generation uncorrupted by the moral failings of the church the false teachings that had developed and the ways that the gospel had been changed or obscured that the reformers were perceiving and whether or not mary was always a virgin just isn't one of those issues we we could almost you know in theology there's a term uh, when we're talking about theology of God himself, we call that theology proper. You know, theology means like words about God. So theology proper is words about God himself, you know, about God himself. We're not doing a theology of sin or of salvation, but we're talking about God. I, I kind of think of the, the way that the reformers in England treated the doctrine of perpetual virginity is, is almost like Mariology proper right? It, it's, it's, it's doctrine, a theological opinion, it's, you know, doctrine might even be too strong of a word, but it's a theological opinion that, that pertains to Mary herself. And it doesn't really directly or in any significant way impact or change or, or take away from any other doctrine that we want to confess about, about Mary, about Jesus, about sin, about God, whatever it is. Um, so that's the principle that the important what, what's going on in the Reformation and the work of the reformers that the heritage that we as Protestants have inherited from them that that, that, that goes back to the early church, goes back to the Bible, it goes back to the, the leaders of the church throughout the centuries um, is that Christ is the center. We are Christians, right? We, we are those who follow Christ and worship Christ. And our theological reflection, our theological formulations, the way we speak about, about what we believe and, and the things that we believe are all, that they have to be centered on Christ. Christ has to be the center. He has to be first. And I think that we see when we take a look, we, we, we zoom way in on, on doctrines about Mary in the English Reformation, and we see that principle being worked out. And we see the way that the things that matter, the things that need to be fought for, are the things that point us to Christ and his work. And that if we get that wrong, we're lost. You know, there's no hope. But we need to get those things right, and we need to make sure that all of our theology is oriented to that. And that is the primary hermeneutical, methodological, theological principle that I think guided the English reformers in their practices and teachings and statements about Mary when it comes to um, traditional beliefs as well as traditional practices and that we see worked out in documents like the Book of Common Prayer and the life of the church that that for the last 500 years, has, has continued to use the Book of Common Prayer all across the world in, in various um, Anglican churches uh, in the globe over. And I, I think that that's a really helpful and exciting thing to think about. And this is why I was so excited when I wrote this paper, is looking at all these, these statements and, and comparing and contrasting, I came to the realization that this is what they're doing. They're focusing on Christ. So it's like, it's not like, it's, it feels less funny to me to be like, oh yeah, they all just accepted perpetual virginity, just like Rome, just like every other church had always accepted before them. They didn't think about it. They thought about all this other stuff, but they just ignored that. 
Well, it's not that they just ignored it or they didn't have time to get to it. It's that what they were doing from the beginning was not, oh, we hate Mary. Oh, we hate the Roman church. It was things have gone wrong. We need to reorient and reshape, reform our worship and our belief to, to recenter Christ in our theology, in our worship, in our practice. And I think that's really beautiful. Um, and I really appreciate that about the Reformation and about all good theology, regardless of the tradition it comes from, is that it is centered on Christ. And obviously, whatever you believe about perpetual virginity, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying everybody ought to believe it or that the reformers were right. I'm just saying the facts are they all believed it. <laughs> and this is why they were okay doing that. And, and this is what it teaches us about them. It teaches us that they cared First and foremost, we could almost say they exclusively cared about Jesus being the center of our faith. So hopefully that made sense. This is a much different episode. Uh, I I hope that uh, we don't have too many solo episodes coming in the future. Once again, um, please keep keep Jens and Hannah in your prayers for for just swift recovery, comfort, uh, peace, and and for the the comfort of of our gracious God. To be upon them. So, uh, in in concluding, uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna quickly uh, pray us out. I uh, I will um, pray that that Christmas collect again. Um, I know it's not Christmas. I know, I know, but I think it's a really beautiful prayer. Um, so I will pray it again, but this time pray it instead of just reading it. Almighty God, which hast given us Thy only begotten Son to take our nature upon Him, and this day, Christmas Day, to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we, being regenerate and made thy children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by thy Holy Spirit through the same, our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at Doxology Podcast. And you can always send us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com for feedback, questions, and ideas for future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to get your feedback and your thoughts on anything I said today and any of our other episodes, um, and especially ideas for future episodes. We love talking about things, talking about Christians of history, figures, talking about um, controversial topics, not so controversial topics that you care about. We, we want to be a journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. And the best way to do that is to have conversations that we all want to hear. So we're happy to talk about all sorts of things and we'd love to hear what you want to hear from us. Um, So please reach out. Feel free. And until next time, 